We are in the fifth week now of a six-week series of sermons that we're calling The Christian Life, looking at the six distinctives of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, so last week, for instance, we looked at the uh, that Christian life is a life of love. It's defined as this life of loving others within the church. That's one of the main things. This week, uh, we've come to the fifth one, which is the Christian life is a life in the Spirit. So if you take out inside your... Uh, actually, I don't have one. Could, could I borrow someone? For, uh, thank you. Yeah. Got one now. Uh, it looks like this inside your uh, program there. Five questions I want us to ask about this life in the Spirit. Uh, Number one, who is the Spirit? Number two, where is the Spirit? Number three, what proves I have the Spirit? Number four, why do I need the Spirit on the reverse? And then number five, how can I be filled with the Spirit? Five questions. Uh, They're not all of equal length, so the first four are going to take about half the time, and then we're going to save almost half the time for the last one. So save some energy. I know you get to number five and think, okay, we're almost done. Don't do that. Save some energy. About half of it is, is number five. Um, and if you, if you want to tune out during the first part, that's fine. But be, be ready for, for number five. So first, who is the Spirit? Short answer here, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, you may have heard if you grew up in church, is uh, God. God himself. So look at the, the first set of verses there under uh, that heading, who is the Spirit. Four places in Scripture where we see this uh, especially clearly. It's all throughout Scripture. But Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then Paul writes, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Another place he writes, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but all of them and everyone is the same God at work. And then Jesus' baptism is another classic example of this. After his baptism as Jesus, the sun was coming up out of the water, the heavens were opened up, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven, that's the Father, said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. So, Father, Son, Spirit. Again, if you've grown up in church, you're familiar with this as as the Trinity. God is triune, three in one. Um... It's weird. I, I don't. I can't explain it. We're not going to try to explain it this morning. Endless illustrations and metaphors trying to kind of help people wrap their mind around it. Um, I guess the best one, at least to me, is probably just this idea that one individual can have three very different roles in one life. Um, so a woman could be a wife, a mother, and an employee or executive or whatever, work life. Um, and those three roles within that same person are almost three different people. You know, you almost have a series of relationships within yourself. Your your work self can have a relationship with your mom self and can talk to your mom self and remind your mom self to do things. And your wife self can have a relationship with, can have thoughts about your mom self or your work self. Um, one person, but three different roles. Something kind of like that. It's a very poor approximation of it, but something kind of like that. Scripture teaches that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is equally God, just as much God, and just as personal as the Father or the Son. So it's not, you know, this question is not, what is the Spirit? It's, who is the Spirit? Who is the Spirit? The Spirit is God. Number two, where is the Spirit? 
And the short answer to this one, where is the Spirit, is the Spirit is within, residing within, dwelling within, living within both individual Christian believers and the, the Christian community as a whole. And this indwelling happens at the moment of belief on the believer's part. So if you look at the first set of verses under number two here, uh, and you were also you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? The Spirit, God, the third person of the Trinity, God himself comes and lives within, dwells within the individual Christian and the Christian community. And this happens, this habitation begins at the moment of belief. So if, if you are a Christian, if you've said, I believe in Christ, I want to trust in what Christ has done for me on the cross, if you've been baptized, if you've taken communion, if, if you own this, this is you. The Spirit lives within you. And this, this is remarkable um, in, in the scope of human history. It's something that nobody could have seen coming. God knew it was coming all along, but it's this shocking development. And human history can kind of be defined as this trajectory of God becoming increasingly close to human beings. So it starts off God the Father. We only know about God the Father. And God the Father reigns in you know, inapproachable light. And you step into his presence and you die. Incredibly distant. Then we have God the Son. Jesus comes and you can touch him. You can feel him. You can talk to him. God with us. Emmanuel. That's what Christ's name means. Emmanuel. God with us. John chapter 1 says he put on flesh to dwell with us. You think, well, how do you get any closer than that? He's right there. You can touch him. You can talk to him. You can, you can feel him. But one degree closer still, and infinitely closer, is the Spirit. The Spirit comes and doesn't just dwell with us, He dwells within us. He comes in. He comes in. And this is why Jesus says to His disciples, uh, you know, after He uh, is resurrected, He says, I'm going away. And they say, no, don't leave. We don't want you to go away. And he says, you don't understand. It's better for you that I go away. Look at this uh, next passage, the second set of verses under heading 2 there. Jesus says, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit. Now I am going away to the one who sent me. And not one of you is asking where I am going. Instead you grieve because of what I have told you. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. He's saying, you don't understand. Don't grieve. Don't be sad that I am leaving. You're going to be a lot closer to God once I am gone than when I am still here. Because I'm going to ask God to send the Spirit. And the Spirit is going to come and live within you. So not just proximity, but union. That's where the Spirit is. Number three, what proves that I have the Spirit? Who is the Spirit? God Himself. Where is the Spirit? The Spirit lives within us. Number three, what proves I have the Spirit? So what do you, you know, let's say you, you consider yourself a Christian. And uh, I'm telling you that the Spirit lives within you. Uh, you don't necessarily feel any indication of that. Um, so what proves it? Are you supposed to just take it on faith? Are you, you know, well, the Bible says it, so I believe that the Spirit lives within me. Is there, is there anything I can give you as far as evidence? And I can. It, it's actually pretty straightforward. The evidence is, is the belief itself. The fact that you believe, the fact that you were able to come to believe in this gospel proclamation about Jesus says quite a bit in and of itself. So look at this first set of verses under heading 3 here. The person without the Spirit 
does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. And then elsewhere, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And he, I love that, that Paul refers there to this, this message being foolishness. He talks elsewhere about preaching, the act of preaching being foolishness. He's very self-conscious about it. And I relate to that. I, I deeply relate to that. And I, I love that he labels it like that. Because that's how I feel. Every week, I, I go to the Bible, and I, I look at what the Bible says about a given topic. And when I'm supposed to stand up here and tell you, and almost every week without fail, I look at it and think, you've got to be kidding me. Nobody, nobody is going to believe this. Nobody is going to buy this. This is foolishness. And it is. It is. It's foolishness to those who don't have the Spirit. But to those who do, it's life. It's the saving power of God himself, Paul says. No one is able to say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. So when I, when I stand up here and say every week, week after week after week, Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. He died for your sins. He rose again to set you free from the power of sin. He wants you to follow Him. He wants you to give your life to Him. What, what is my expectation? I mean, what, how do I view that? Do I think that I have like made a good case? There, there is no case. There's no case. I've got no case. There is no case. There's nothing. All there is is God moving within people's hearts, God making the case, God connecting the dots, the Spirit coming upon people, and making something that makes no sense make sense. Now, let me clarify. I'm not saying it's like secret. I'm not saying it's gibberish. It's right there in black and white on the page. It's plain. Anybody can see it. It's accessible to anybody. I'm not talking about some secret knowledge that you just get. It's, it's there, but you can't understand it. It's like how now you know uh, all the Ivy Leagues have all their courses online for free. What good has that done? Zero. Because nobody can understand them. You go online and you're like, well, I think I'm going to go back to my gossip site. You know, because what is this? I can't, I can't tap into this. Same with this. We're not talking about secret knowledge. We're not talking about gibberish. It's right there in the Bible, in black and white. It doesn't make any sense unless you have the Spirit unless you have the Spirit. So if you've been able to at any point connect the dots, if you've been able at any point to get it, even just for a second, if you've been able to make this commitment of wanting it for yourself, it means something right there. It means something right there. You would not have been able to do that without the Spirit of God coming upon you. And I think this is going to be the biggest leap for a lot of you here this morning is just realizing this has already happened to me. This has already happened to me. God is already active in my life. Number four, on the reverse, why do I need the Spirit? So, who is the Spirit? God Himself. Where is the Spirit within each believer? What proves that I have the Spirit? The belief itself is quite a bit of proof. Number four, why do I need the Spirit? And more precisely here, I, I, what I wish I would have asked is rather, uh, why, do, why do I need to be full of the Spirit? Why do I need to be full of the Spirit? So I want to start this fourth one with a distinction, which is having the Spirit versus being full of the Spirit. So uh, you can have the Spirit in your life, um, but you can do things unintentionally, um, not on purpose, to kind of limit the Spirit's influence. 
Or uh, conversely, you cannot do the things that would expand the Spirit's influence. And we give the Spirit free reign. So it's the difference between having the Spirit kind of in a closet of your life, kind of locked up in one corner, versus having free reign, versus being able to move throughout the house. And the thing about the Spirit is, the Spirit expands to fill whatever space He is given. So the more room He's given to Rome, the, the greater influence He has in your life, and the more full of the Spirit you become. Um, so why do you need to be full of the Spirit? Let's say you have the Spirit. Let's say you believe. Why do you need to be full of the Spirit? Why does the Spirit need to well up within you? Why does the Spirit need to have greater control, greater influence? And I, I think there, there's some confusion on this, which is that when people think about being full of the Spirit, I think there's a, a pretty high level of, of consciousness in this country, in the U.S., that they're, they're uh, in the Bible and in certain churches, um, there's an emphasis both in the Bible and in certain Christian groups on kind of these um, miraculous, otherworldly, supernatural things that the Bible says that a person can do if they are full of the Spirit. So, for instance, um, supernaturally healing somebody. It's all throughout Scripture. happens today in many churches still. Um, Scripture says a person who is full of the Spirit may have the power to supernaturally heal someone else of their sickness. Um, or there's this phenomenon of speaking in, in tongues that you may have heard of. So a person um, speaks in a language that they themselves don't even understand. This heavenly language, unintelligible to them, may or may not be intelligible to somebody else who hears it. And and uh, then there's just this ecstatic experience of God's presence. You know, you hear about people being overwhelmed with God's presence, joy and peace to the point that they fall over, you know, just this, this intense ecstatic experience. All this otherworldly supernatural stuff. And I, I think that scares a lot of people. So you hear about all that stuff, and you hear about that in association with being full of the Spirit. And what you think is, well, I, actually, I don't really know if I want to be full of the Spirit. You know, I'm a little scared. And what I want to say to you this morning is that that thought, that thought, I don't know if I want to be full of the Spirit. That thought is the most illogical, the most self-defeating, the most destructive, harmful thought you could possibly have. That thought, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be full of the Spirit. Here's why. You don't just need to be full of the Spirit to do these otherworldly, miraculous, crazy things. You need to be full of the Spirit. You have to be full of the Spirit. It's required to be full of the Spirit to do the most basic activities of the Christian life. It just will not work at all, period, flat out, if you're not full of the Spirit. So look at this this set of verses under uh, section 4 here. Under Why do I need the Spirit? From Colossians 1. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Father. Nothing, nothing weird there. Just this normal stuff that people think of as Christian living. You know, knowledge of God and wisdom and understanding. Pleasing God. Living a life that pleases Him. Bearing fruit. Good works. Strengthened. Power. Joy. Patience. It's not weird at all. 
And yet none of it's possible without the Spirit. Or in Galatians 5, the most those famous passage about this, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, you know, the, the results of being full of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So in other words, if you're short on any of that, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, if you're short on any of that, if you're running low on any of that, the problem is you're not full enough of the Spirit. That's the problem. And if you were full of the Spirit, you would have those things in abundance. It's not for the weird stuff only. It's not for the, the special supernatural stuff only. It's for the basic stuff. And this is the greatest misunderstanding about the Christian life. Because people think that they can just become a Christian, and then it's going to happen. And because of that, Christians oftentimes are more miserable than non-Christians. Because they think that this is what's supposed to be happening in their life. This is where they set the bar. This is what they're being told at church their life is supposed to look like. And it doesn't look like that at all. And so it's frustrating. This chasm between what's being described and the way that their life actually is, is it's extremely painful. It's this extremely painful gap. They'd be better off to not be Christians at all because then they wouldn't be trying for anything. They wouldn't be have this unattainable standard set in front of them. And the problem there, the problem there simply and easily is this, this gap of not understanding what it means to be full of the Spirit. Not understanding the necessity of becoming full of the Spirit. Letting the Spirit guide you, control you, well up within your life to where it's the most dominant force inside of you. That's why you need the Spirit. Not just for this weird, otherworldly stuff, but for basic Christian living itself. So, the fifth and final section, where, I, like I said, I want to spend the majority of our time, so re-gear up for this, um, is, is how can I be filled with the Spirit? How can I do this? What am I supposed to do? Um, Spirit's God. Spirit lives within you. Uh, you know that because you were able to believe you're not going to be able to do the most basic Christian stuff, like loving other people. You're not going to have the joy you're supposed to have. You're not going to have the peace you're supposed to have unless you're full of the Spirit. Um, so how do you get full of the Spirit? First step, prerequisite, the, the thing you have to have to become full of the Spirit before anything else is reflected in these first verses. So take a look at the first set of verses that are under section 5. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I spread out my hands to you. I thirst for you like a parched land. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. First prerequisite for becoming filled with the Spirit is you have to you have to thirst for Him. You have to want Him. You can't just kind of want Him. You have to thirst for Him like a man who's dying of thirst wants water. You have to thirst for Him like a man who's drowning wants air. It has to be this this intense, insatiable, longing, craving, thirst for God's presence in your life. That's, it has to be that. It doesn't happen without that. And you say, well, I guess it's not going to happen for me then. Because I don't have that. I don't have that. I don't have that intensity of thirst. I mean, I can sit here and listen to you talk about it and maybe become halfway convinced that I might need to be full of the Spirit kind of logically. But if you're talking about this primal thirst for God's presence, let's be honest, I don't have that. I don't have that. And I could try to pretend like I did, but I don't. 
So if that's what's required, I guess I'm never going to be full of God's Spirit like you're talking about people are supposed to be full of God's Spirit. Uh, so I think that's good, I mean, to acknowledge the problem. And then now the step is to say, well, how do you fix it? You know, How do you develop that kind of thirst? Is it possible to develop that type of primal, intense thirst for God's presence? Um, so what I want to do is look first at these these psalmists that are saying this. You know, that there's people who have felt this way before. My soul pants for you, my God. I'm assuming most people here couldn't say that. But there's people that have been able to say that honestly. My soul pants for you, my God. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. I thirst for you like a parched land. And the question I want to ask about these guys is, what was different about them? Why were these guys able to thirst for God with that type of intensity to where they could use these images and be accurate? What was different about them? Were they were they super spiritual? Were they just kind of a different breed, just kind of freaks? You know, they're just born as these God-hungering souls. And what I want to submit this morning, the kind of the big idea, is that no, nobody has a, a more intense longing for God naturally than anybody else. Rather, we are all born naturally. We all have an innate, intense spiritual thirst. We're all spiritually thirsty. We're all spiritually empty. We, we come to the world that way. We grow up that way. We all are spiritually thirsty. We all want meaning. We all want purpose. We all want this deep, abiding happiness and fulfillment. We all want those things, and we can't not want them. So the issue isn't that some people have more spiritual thirst than others. The issue is how we distract ourselves from it and where we direct it. So look at the, the next set of verses there from Jeremiah 2.13, which puts this very well. Uh, God says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So two separate things. Uh, In the first place, forsaking me, the spring of living water. That's half of it. But that's only half of it. The second half of it is then going and digging their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So the picture is of you're, you're in a desert, you know, and there's this uh, flashing neon sign, you know, with an arrow that says "Spring of Living Water," and you look up at it, and you go and you know, get your shovel and start digging, you know, right next to it. You're gonna dig your well. You're gonna dig your well to quench your thirst by yourself. And what Scripture is very clear about is that not only is everybody born with this intense spiritual thirst, but everybody also equally is born with this equally intense desire to quench that thirst on their own, to quench that thirst without going to God, to quench that thirst without having to depend on anyone else besides themselves. So you dig your own well, you dig your own cistern, even if it doesn't hold water, even if your well can't hold water, because at least it's your well. At least you dug it yourself. At least you didn't have to depend on anybody else for it. So to to get more specific, you know, what are these cisterns that we dig? What are these Places we look to quench our spiritual thirst apart from God. Now, this is going to take a minute. Um, again, I warned you, section 5, it's half this of the sermon. It's going to take a minute, but I want to talk about three categories of cisterns that I think we dig. I'll go through them somewhat quickly, but the three, three types of cisterns, wells that we dig, ways we try to quench our spiritual thirst apart from God. Um, and three levels, kind of, you can kind of put them in a hierarchy. Um, so the, the, the most base level, the least sophisticated of all, the way we 
we try to quench this spiritual thirst is is just through pleasure, just through plain and simple pleasure. Um, so you know, I think everybody's had this experience of, you know, it's it's after dinner, um, day's over, and kids are in bed, and they're just kind of a a blah feeling. You know, you just you just feel a certain emptiness, a, a certain lack of fulfillment. And one of the ways of dealing with that is, well, you know, maybe maybe I need to get something else to eat. You know, maybe I need a piece of chocolate. Maybe I need to get the bag of chips. Maybe some ice cream. You know, maybe it's that. Maybe I need to. Maybe I need a little more to drink. Maybe I need another glass of wine. Maybe I need a, a beer or a shot or whatever. Maybe it's. Uh, maybe I should watch something. You know, maybe I should watch a movie. Maybe I should watch a show. Maybe I should watch five shows in a row and fall asleep watching the show. Um. You know, whether it's food or drink or entertainment, just stuff that feels good, or, or sex, obviously, you know, either legitimately or illegitimately, um, pleasure, just stuff that feels good. And that's one of the ways that we try to meet this spiritual, this deep spiritual thirst that we have. Now, nothing wrong with pleasure, nothing wrong with all those things can be enjoyed in, in healthy ways. So when you take something that, that can be enjoyed a little bit, that can give a little bit of happiness in a healthy way, and you try to go to it for the water that will quench your thirst in your soul, in your spirit. That's the, the most base level type of cistern we try to dig. Level two, a little bit more sophisticated than that. If, if we want to call the first one uh, pleasure, if that's the key word, the, the key word for the second one would be health. So this is definitely a level above. And this person thinks they're smarter. They they have graduated from their you know pleasure days in the past, and they realize that can't make them happy. And what they want is health. They're going to be happy. They're going to be fulfilled. Their thirst will be quenched if they could just get healthy, physically healthy, financially healthy, relationally healthy, healthy in their career, just healthy, healthy, balanced life, healthy as parents. Um, so it's you know I, I need to exercise more. That'll make me feel better. That'll that'll make me feel less empty. Or, you know, uh, financial health is the one that looms largest often. You know, if I if I could just, you know, if we could just set enough aside um, so that all our kids could go to whatever college they wanted to go to, debt-free, and so that we could live in retirement for 25 years at the same standard of living we're living at right now. Very modest goals. Very modest goals. Just enough for all the kids to go to whatever school they want to, debt-free, just enough so we can live at the same standard of living as we're at right now for 25 years. If we could just be financially healthy, then I bet this feeling of emptiness would go away. Do you think that? Do you think that if you met your financial goals, you would be happy? I think some of you do. I think some of you really think that. And you wouldn't say it out loud, because you know it's absurd. You're not going to say it out loud, but you, deep down... You think that. You think if you met your financial goals, you'd be happy, that the emptiness would go away. And it's ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. Health is not going to ultimately satisfy and quench the thirst any more than than pleasure does. The third level, the third type of cistern, one notch above that, is uh, what I would call distinction. And this is you... Again, I think it's it's one step further down the path for sure. You think you're going to quench that spiritual thirst inside you by kind of setting yourself apart. So whether that be, you know, usually this has to do with work and career, and it's not doing it for money. It's just doing it for its own sake, doing it for achievement, doing it for position, doing it for power. 
getting to the next place and having people look at you and say, that guy, that woman did it. You know, they're, they're it. And, you know, there's kind of more um, illustrious versions of this, you know, leaving a legacy or whatever you want to call it. Um, but, but it's all kind of the same thing. There's this ambition, this desire to win, this desire to get to the top, and through that to kind of quench this thirst that you have in your soul. So putting aside for, for a moment that this does a lot of societal good, because it does, you know, uh, this makes the economy run, that people have this burning ambition is what makes the, the country work. Putting that aside for a second, just look at the person, him or herself. Look at the person within their own soul and whether they ever quench their thirst. And the truth is they don't. You know, all, the, all these great leaders, you know, the statistics, how many of them have bad relationships with their fathers, you know, and are just looking for this, this validation that they never got. And that's great for society, but it never works out for them. It never works out for the person. Richard Nixon is the, the ultimate example of this, which wasn't great for society either. You know, it's just always wanting the next step, just so thirsty, so thirsty, so parched, just wanting water wanting that thirst to be quenched through distinction. So it's kind of pick your poison. You know, whatever kind of well you want to dig. Most of us do a cocktail of all three. You know, you have one that's kind of your go-to, but you dabble in the others on the side. And through the combination of all of these, you think that you're going to make the thirst go away. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which one you choose because none of them hold water. None of them hold water, and you're just digging, and there's just dirt and sand, and you're just getting thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. But hey, at least you didn't have to go to God to quench your thirst. At least you're doing it on your own. My people have committed two sins, two sins, two halves to this problem. One, they've forsaken me, the stream of living water. And two, they've tried to dig their own cisterns that don't hold water. So the Bible talks about then to this two-fold problem a two-step solution. And you, you heard it read earlier, Gary uh, read it. Uh, let's read it again now. You hear it at the uh, bottom of section five. It's doing two things, twin action steps um, from Romans and Colossians and Galatians. This is the Apostle Paul. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's all the broken cisterns. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. If through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Then we have a nice list there, skipping down. You have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit, what is contrary to the flesh. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have nailed the passions and desires of the flesh to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Two things. Take off the old, put on the new. Put to death the flesh. Put to death these other desires, these other ways you're trying to, to quench your spiritual thirst, and then turn to God. And going back to the way we started this fifth section, that thirst then naturally develops once you stop spending all your time and energy trying to quench it other places. So once you put those things to death, once you fill in those other cisterns with cement and put them behind you, then all of a sudden 
you, you start to notice that the thirst is there. It's, it's because you've been distracting yourself. It's because you've been trying to quench it other places. It's there. You are thirsty for God. You're thirsty for God. Naturally, it's there. If you just put to death all this other stuff. But, but notice why you have to do this. I mean, this is the, this fundamental misunderstanding of the problem with sin. People think, oh, I, I shouldn't do that. It's bad. Oh, I shouldn't do that. God wouldn't like that. Oh, I shouldn't do that. I mean, maybe I'm going to get punished. It's none of that. Forget all of that. You shouldn't do it because you're edging out the Spirit of God in your life. Because God's Spirit Himself would come and take up residence within you and fill you if you would just stop filling yourself with all this other stuff that leaves no room for it. Don't forget about whether it's wrong or bad, whether it makes God unhappy. It's not those things. It's not those things that matter. It's that you're leaving no room for God's Spirit. And if you did leave room, you would thirst for Him. And if you did thirst for Him, you could cry out to Him. And if you did cry out to Him, He would come and fill you and change your life in a way that you now think is not even possible. It's not... I'm not saying it's simple. I'm not saying you can go home and do this one time and then, you know, okay, here's all my wells and cross them off my list. And I mean, it's a, it's a lifetime struggle. But this is what it looks like. This is what it means to live the Christian life. To root out sin. To put to death sin. Mortification is the old word. Strangle your sins. Drown your sins. Fill in these cisterns with cement. Root them out. Not because you're trying to be a good person but because God is within you. And because if you do that, He will fill you. And if He fills you, if He fills you, then you can live this life that He's called you to live. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would speak to us now and show us one thing at least one thing one place we're going for fulfillment one place we're going to try to quench our spiritual thirst um, that we know isn't going to work and we've been going for a long time and um, we just keep getting thirstier but we can't stop God I ask you that you would just give us eyes in this moment as we sit here praying that you would just open our eyes, that the scales would fall off our eyes and we would see it for what it is, just a a broken cistern that cannot hold water. I ask that you would see through us, that you would show us how empty we're going to remain if we keep going back to this place. And God, I pray that you would give us a sense of conviction and a sense of hope about the possibility of becoming filled with your spirit. We know you live within us. And we know that so oftentimes we edge you out and fill our lives with these other things so that we're not even thirsty anymore. We, we don't even know we're thirsty for you because we're so busy trying to quench our thirst all these other ways. I pray, God, that you would, as we learn to put to death these areas of sinful longing, these areas of pursuit where we're trying to make ourselves satisfied, as we learn, learn to put those things to death, I ask that you would revive this thirst for you and that you would give us a confidence to come and ask you to quench it. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.